Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a contact us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there in listener land, welcome back. This is episode 94 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back this week. We've got a fantastic show for you. I have to thank my co-host for bringing in uh, a guest that you guys will all very much enjoy. But before I do that, I want to welcome my co-host to the show. What's up, Steve-O? Hey, Tucker. Good to be back on the show. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, I know. we've been a little lighter than usual on shows this year, but we're, we're definitely bringing punch and value. And... The 2019 real estate market has just been off like a rocket. So you and I are both pretty busy, and surprisingly, I don't know. Don't ask me all the logistics and details why, but, but we're definitely having a uh, a great start to the year and a great little run in spring. So no recession in 2019. The Fed's buying no, mortgage backed securities. Rates are going down. Fed's buying mortgage backed securities. We're all good, right? <laughs> <laughs> At least for yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's all like it's like ten years ago all over again, right? <laughs> uh, kind of, it smells a little bit like it, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. That's a conversation for another day. We, but we got some good conversation for today. So maybe let our listeners know what we got uh, teed up for them this week. This came out of our last Premier Property Group sales meeting. We had a special guest who is now on the podcast with us today. His name is Sean Cleave. I'll let him officially introduce himself and his position and and all that he does. I'll tell you, he's an important guy though, Tucker, because I just looked him up on Facebook and sent a friend request to him. And I'm staring at a photo with him like three feet behind Governor Kate Brown as she's signing something that looks important to our industry. I can tell you he's spearheading the charge for Realtor Day, which as of today is a few days away. When this goes out to the masses, it might be the next day. And we definitely are encouraging our fellow realtors to get involved. There is a lot of crazy stuff coming out of Salem that affects our industry. That We've already seen some of it come out in recent weeks and there's more and more on the horizon and Sean's going to bring us up to speed on that. So Sean, without further ado, welcome. Thank you for having me. You are absolutely welcome. It's our pleasure. So first of all, Sean, tell us your official position. Who do you work for? What do you do? 
How long yeah. have you done it? Yeah, so I'm the government affairs director for the Oregon Association of Realtors. I've had the job for about four and a half years uh, now. Before that, I've had various positions within the state capitol. I lobbied for six years for the Oregon Farm Bureau doing land use and taxation. Uh, worked for the Speaker of the House for a little while. Started off as an intern in the 1999-2000 interim for Senator Gene Durfler, who was the majority leader at that time, and basically never left the Capitol. So uh, I'm a little bit of a hill rat, I guess you could say. Gotcha. Do you have a special tie-in to real estate, or that just came through politics? You know, use the right tool for the right job. I am, a, I guess, a political animal, and it's been a, a great four and a half years learning about the real estate industry. Of course, I'm a homeowner myself. Uh, my wife and I purchased our second home a few years ago when we started to build a family, but that's the extent of the experience that I've had in real estate before advocating uh, on your behalf at the state legislature. Uh, it's been a, a, an incredible learning experience, and uh, I know there's a lot more to learn, but you know, politics is all about relationships, and the relationships that I have help bridge the gap to help drive our agenda forward at the state capitol. Gotcha. And Sean, just for clarification, uh, you, when you say you're home, you do live in Salem, correct? I do live in Salem. Yeah. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. And so like four and a half years ago, the OAR, Oregon Association of Realtors, found you and brought you on as an advocate for our industry, correct? Yep, that's correct. Okay. So gotcha. he's, he's kind of like a, a hired gun, some good talent. And they said, mm -hmm. we want you on our side, basically. Well, we have a really good team here at OAR. Sean Gillians, who's our contract lobbyist, uh, he used to have my job within the association. He worked here for eight years before he deciding to go out on his own. He's got a variety of other clients, and we also have one of his associates, Michael Van Dyke. So the three of us are down there working bills and uh, driving the ball forward. Awesome. Awesome. That's one thing I appreciate about real estate and Tucker, you'll appreciate this too. I mean, Sean Tucker and I originally started our, our careers in the mortgage business and they just did not have the lobbying groups that the, yeah. the realtors and the national association on the, on a national level and on a state level, we are so fortunate and so blessed to have such strong bodies taking care of us from a legislative standpoint and making sure that us and the consumer as it pertains to us is really, really in front of the lawmakers and decision makers of the political landscape. So Sean, talk to us about what is going on now. Maybe start with recent things that have passed that you're aware sure. of and have dealt with and then go into stuff on the docket now and then maybe stuff into the horizon. Well, we have a variety of bills in front of us that we'll be advocating for on Realtor Day. But unfortunately, the uh, the big piece of policy right out of the gate was Senate Bill 608, which implemented statewide rent control. Currently, there's eight, uh, four states that provide an opportunity for cities uh, to implement rent control. Oregon became the first state in the nation to implement a statewide standard. We fought like heck on that bill, but uh, that thing was greased from the beginning. Originally, a few days before we went into session, we were told we would have the opportunity to review the legislation, make some edits. There is definitely, uh, from our perspective, some flaws 
in the uh, mechanics of the legislation, setting aside just the rent control policy in itself and how that disencourages investments and uh, really impacts the amount of housing that we have. Um, we had some tweaks that we thought would have been beneficial, but the bill was scheduled for a public hearing and work session in the Senate the very same day, uh, which is unprecedented, and then moved straight out of the Senate, almost on a party, party line vote. Uh, Senator Johnson opposed that bill with the Senate Republicans. Then it went to the House. Uh, in the House, we have 60 members of the Assembly that represent our interests on a district level. 38 of them are Democrats, and uh, they really control a variety of the uh, policies, even when they are divided amongst themselves because they have such great numbers. A policy bill only requires 31 to uh, 31. Did they vote on, how, on party lines in the House level for this you know, bill? The, the bill was not a party line vote. We had three votes, that uh, three no votes within the Democrat caucus. Uh, one person was absent, and, but uh, they, it passed by 34 votes in the House. Uh, so the, we knew that this bill was coming. Uh, we weren't exactly sure what the, what the bill would look like exactly. Uh, I spent the interim with the belief that the state of Oregon would never be able to put together a statewide standard of rent control when you come down to having conversations with a variety of people with different perspectives, regardless of their party, you end up with a lot of people with different ideas of what fairness looks like. And I thought it would be all but impossible for the assembly to arrive at a number that uh, they collectively felt was fair. Um, but, you know, occasionally we're wrong. And, and 608 is a result of um, our inability to read exactly what was going to happen before it did. In 2017, we had a very similar bill. That bill would have lifted the Oregon's state preemption, which prevents counties and cities from implementing their own rent control. Uh, and our concern there was to, to maintain that standard because from city to city, you have a completely different level of sophistication. Uh, some uh, city councilors will... Uh, make the assumption that maybe 1% is a fair rate of return on profitability. Other people will use the opportunity to implement policy and do it in a way that really handicaps developers and property owners from renting out their properties altogether. Uh, I call those proxy legislation where the intent is actually so convoluted that uh, it just makes it impossible for your average person to do what they're supposed to be allowing through statute. Um, so that bill would have just lifted the preemption. Uh, the bill passed by 31 votes in the House, went to the Senate, was amended substantially in the Senate committees, came back to the Senate floor only to be re-referred back to the Rules Committee. And in the Rules Committee, it was amended yet again, and at that time, the legislation had re removed the lift of the preemption. It had a variety of fairly balanced issues that it was trying to address, but the advocates for rent control backed off the legislation at that time. And that bill actually 
came out of the Senate Rules Committee and died on Senator Courtney's desk. Uh, of course, we go directly from session into an election season, and one of the property owners that was a no vote on lifting that preemption in 2017, unfortunately, drew a primary and the individual who ran against him uh, used that vote and a variety of other votes, votes that were taken way out of context, of course, uh, and he lost his primary election, even though we actively engaged with the help of NAR to, to support his re-election. Um, oddly enough, uh, Senator Monroe, uh, other than his vote on rent control, would have been considered probably one of the more liberal members of their caucus. But as a property owner, he understands that there are certain ways that uh, you have to operate in order to stay afloat and, and maintain profitability. Uh, he wasn't actively raising rents on his tenants, and he was a, a fabulous tenant, but you know, American political culture being what it is, uh, you're either 110% behind uh, the party line or you're ostracized and executed in a, in a political primary. That's one of the reasons I think that we have such volatile and um, politicized elections and uh, policy agendas in, in the state and Congress. I, so, you know, I think you're right. Hold on, Steve, real quick. I just want to kind of tell a story so people can kind of understand what Senate Bill 608 really means, um, which is statewide rent control, right? Which basically means that you can only raise rent a certain percentage, and it's a small percentage uh, year over year on tenants. But the problem being, and it's funny because this bill actually went through Sean Wright as uh, one of the members on my bowling team. Uh, if, if he's out there listening, he knows who it is, but he bought a, a 20 unit complex that he had under contract before this, we'll call it a sneaker bill kind of snuck through and, and got put into law. Um, cause based on what you're telling me previous to that, there was another bill that was, had some similarities, but it, it bounced, it kind of pinballed back and forth while this yeah. one just kind of slipped right through without any real pushback for, uh, probably a variety of reasons we can all imagine, but he bought a 20 unit complex and it's they're all one bedroom units so they're they're lower rent units right um it's existing construction and a lot of these tenants had we'll call it you know don't bother me and i'll keep rent low rent right yeah. and so that's a win-win for everybody the problem now though is that with rent control in place it forces him as a property owner to continually jack rents up every year to the maximum amount because if he does not do that he doesn't protect not only his cash flow but he doesn't protect his cap rate, which is ultimately the valuation that he could end up selling for at some point in the future. So it hamstrings you in terms of not only what your cash flow can be, which, you know, the market should dictate that. But more importantly, it dictates your valuation down the road if you ever want to sell, because a function, uh, the valuation of a multifamily property is a function of the income that it creates. And the income it creates is now governed by what the government says that you can increase it on a year-over-year -year basis. So a lot of these uh, people that live in, we'll call them nice handshake deal rental properties with low rents and don't bother me, a lot of that's going to go bye-bye. So, you know, I think my, my favorite quote is, I don't want to get too political on this episode, but uh, for those of you guys that follow an individual by the name of Peter Schiff, he has a quote that uh, kind of talks about this kind of stuff where he says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's a lot of things that happen when you're trying to have good intentions, which I understand, but there are other effects, we'll call them. And that was just one example. So I'll let no, you know. That's mm -hmm. very true. And, and, and just to give you guys my favorite quote, 
Uh, the Legislative Assembly is good at doing two things, nothing and overreacting. And I think 608 is a perfect example of an overreaction to a market that is in distress because we just haven't built enough housing, whether it be multifamily or single family detached. Yeah. yeah. And, and and what I've what I've heard over and over again is that rent control is it's good short term, but it's really bad long term for the overall overall market as think of all the single family um, homeowners that are just going to sell them. And now you, now you've got less rental stock in, out there for everyone. So and how that affects people. Yeah, the, the people who are mostly impacted by this are the people who are making strategic investments, maybe, maybe for retirement. Uh, they've chosen uh, to make their investment in real property and provide a rental opportunity for somebody. But they don't have the sophistication to be able to comply with state or local rules. And we have seen, based on the MLS numbers, a bunch of single-family rentals just being dumped. That's great for an opportunity for people to buy, but I'm hearing more and more from Oregon employers that, hey, we don't have places for families to rent while they bridge the gap uh, when they move here to take a position for the, a permanent home. Um, and it takes a while to find a permanent home as well. Yeah, we need a, a we need a lot more housing. I mean, at the end of the day, to drive down the cost of housing, you need more housing units, right? Yeah. You, it, yeah. To govern your way to lower prices is just not the way to do it. You need to allow for more units to be built. Now, that's a whole other to topic conversation that Steve and I could uh, have a show all about just that and the policies that we have to fight against. Hell, I bitch about them all the time on this show. But well, that's, uh, it, that's one of the things we're going to be advocating for on Realtor Day. Uh, there's a variety of supply-based bills that have been introduced. Uh, mostly focused on density, but we're in a situation right now where we have to grow up and we have to grow out. Uh, Governor Kitzhaber was very fond of saying the one thing that Oregonians hate more than sprawl is density, and I think that's very true based on the reactions to some of the neighborhood associations that have seen these density bills. Uh, but our opportunity uh, to talk about housing for everybody in Oregon across all income spectrums has really been teed up by the Oregon's uh, economic of our Office of Economic Analysis. Uh, for the first time, we've been operating under not just our own uh, studies of what the supply demand curve looks like in Oregon, but the state economists have said, we're 155,000 units short today, which means we need to make up that gap plus create the units that we would normally do. Uh, so from, from the perspective of permitting, we're doing about 17,000 permits a year statewide. Uh, and we have to take those permits from 17,000 to 30,000 a year over the next 20 years just to make up that gap to equalize the supply demand curve. It's a monumental task. And unfortunately, Oregon's land use system really makes it difficult uh, to navigate uh, for your average developer and especially difficult to um, do design plan review and implement your plan to develop. Uh, and if you do, it's usually three to five houses at a time because we're focusing on infill uh, rather than what we really need, which is nearly complete completely new communities built from scratch, especially in the Portland area. 
which is mm-hmm. difficult because we have what they call a UGB, right? <laughs> so that UGB exactly governs right. a lot of that. Yeah. So yeah. it's which is a, an overarching governor on supply, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So. We have created our own artificial island to which we build in. And I'm not in a position to say that we need to pave over farm and forest land, but I don't think that we are effectively doing our math about the supply demand curve correctly and bringing in enough land into the UGV to drive down prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just saw an article on um, the, the Stafford Triangle is a very hotly contested area that sits outside the UGB. And there was the most recent article I read is that they were going to freeze part of that for at least another 10 years, yeah. um, which seems crazy to me because that's sandwiched right between Tualatin, Lake Oswego and West Lynn, which yet, I mean, I grew up in West Lynn or went to high school there. I know that area well. There is a very big corridor that is in need of expansion that and they just they don't want to do it at the end of the day. Um, But all that's going to do is ultimately raise prices elsewhere throughout those three cities because you can't really put any more housing in any of those cities. You're maxed out. There isn't any more developable area. And if, if there is, well, it's probably been built out or close to it at this point. So, hey, Sean, I'd love to tell our listeners that. Rent control was the worst of their problems on the horizon. Yeah, we got to skip forward. Steve's got yeah, but but it but there it is not. So move on to some of the other items on the docket that that the um the state is talking about. Sure. Well, I'd love to be able to say that uh, that we are balancing uh, a good piece of legislation for every bad, um, but that's not necessarily true. We have been very successful in killing a lot of uh, very negative pieces of legislation in the past, but the the big focus from an opposition standpoint at the current time is House Bill 3349. That bill just moved from the House Human Services and Housing Committee to the House Revenue Committee. It passed by one vote, um, and uh, that, again, was a, a bipartisan no vote, but it still moved forward. That bill caps the ability to take the mortgage interest deduction uh, for uh, Oregonians of a certain income, and it also eliminates it entirely for second homes. So we have strong concerns with that piece of legislation. Uh, As you guys know, uh, and since we're getting close to uh, the middle of April, and we've got tax day right around the corner, I think a lot of people who have uh, already filed their taxes and seen the returns uh, the, the state and local caps that were imposed by the federal government when they passed the 2017 Tax and Jobs Act severely impacted Oregonians. At, we're we're an income tax state, so the bil- ability to take those deductions really impacts middle class Oregonians pretty drastically. And now we're adding insult to injury with House Bill 3349. Um, There's also a lot of misinformation that's out there about the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, The feds knocked, we went from a million to $750,000 worth of indebtedness. Your median home price in the Portland metro area is approaching $450,000. The policies that have been implemented at the federal level and if, if House Bill 3349 move forward will have a drastic impact on uh, what people can afford from a housing perspective in Oregon. And uh, you guys know that the housing market's really hot right now and 
people in the metro area are are closing in houses with you know thirty forty thousand dollars over asking. Uh, so to add a uh, provision that basically says we're going to tax Oregonians just because they have a mortgage, it's just not right. So the numbers that we bring to the table are always provided from NAR or realtor pro- property resources. We like to pride ourselves on having good data. Uh, one of the th- keys to longevity as a lobbyist is never lie. Uh, I know a lot of people might find that shocking, uh, but the, <laughs> the lobbyists that do lie usually end up in the paper, and I don't like to be in the paper. Uh, so okay, we Sean, bring well, I got, a, data I got a brain buster for you then. Yeah. So the House Bill 3349, I, it's intended its true intent is to raise money for our broke government, right? So where are they saying that this money, which is basically higher taxation, where is this to be routed? Are they trying to put a silver lining on it that it's supposed to pay for affordable housing or something like that to get people to say, oh, sure, yeah, we'll vote for it? Or do you know the details on that? Oh, boy, you you must have read the bill. No, I didn't. I'm just guessing because I know. Yeah, no, the bill's got some really nice things that it goes to, and it's, it's redistributing. If you read it on its face, the bill redistributes money in the housing programs to other housing programs. But Oregon's legislative process has two routes. There's policy routes and there's a budgetary route. The budgetary route goes through joint committees and it is a very deliberate, balanced budget. And bills like 3349 that say, hey, we're going to take this money over here and put it over here, just do those bills do not actually have any binding uh, power within the assembly unless that bill goes through Ways and Means. And that bill currently is not scheduled to go through Ways and Means. So, literally, what we will be doing is balancing the backs or balancing the state budget on the backs of Oregon homeowners. And that's one of the things we really are fighting to prevent. So Sean, when you were at our, this is a, this is a PERS uh, solution. Well, <laughs> Potentially. It, yeah. it, it is everything, everything anymore is a PERS solution. And I, uh, as an Oregonian, I have some strong concerns, especially as an Oregonian with uh, three children that will go to public school uh, I think that we need to do everything we can to invest in our public education system. My wife is a fabulous teacher, and uh, I think she works, uh, earns every penny of what she uh, earns. But when you look at, not necessarily for young teachers or even middle-aged teachers right now, because we have three different tiers of PERS, but if you look at the tier one PERS retirees and the amount that they were promised in the retirement, and the assumptions of their longevity post-retirement, we have a $20 billion uh, deficit that we have to fill over the next 20 years. And it's going to start eating heavily into budgets. Uh, There was currently, uh, a couple days ago, there was a study that was released from the um, Oregon Business Council. And they estimate, based on all of the open information that the assembly and the government provides, that if for any new tax, 80 cents on the dollar will go towards the purse unfunded liability. Wow. wow. 
It's a big number. Steve, I cut you off earlier. Sorry about that. Um, no, that, that actually was what I was going to say. Sean, when you came to our sales meeting, you talked about, I mean, you, you just went into it. How how indebted the state is and, and the uh, the holes they're trying to fill. And one thing one thing I've appreciated over the years, you know, we, we talk about the federal government's deficits and they're monstrous, yeah. but they have the ability to borrow and print money unlike the states do. So when states and municipalities start to get in trouble, they have to they have to put absolute concrete solutions in place quickly. They can't just keep kicking the can down the road the way the federal government can and does. Yeah, um, I think I think right, wrong, or otherwise, we have a requirement for a, a balanced budget. But what it does mean is when we have the bills due, that we have to pay them before we expand services. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it Sean, do you think up. that that House Bill three three four nine, obviously Senate Bill six zero eight, had had some some slipperiness to it? It yeah. kind of slid right through yeah. via we'll call it behind the scenes support power, whatever maybe. Do you feel like House Bill 3349 has that same type of support that you're going to be up against? I don't I don't think so. I don't want to ever say anything until we signy die and end the session. Uh, but right now I'm feeling pretty confident about that bill, our ability to uh, tell the story we need to tell. Uh, one piece of information regarding House Bill 3349 is 52% of Oregonians own their house outright. They're not paying a mortgage. If we want to have a conversation about taxation or tax policies or a more progressive schedule for our income tax brackets, we're going to be there. We're going to be at that table and have that conversation. But to tax people just because they're paying on a mortgage is ludicrous. And that message really resonates with a lot of members of the assembly on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, as it should. I mean, these days, especially because in our last election cycle, we had a tri-county bond measure that was insane in terms of the increase in property taxes for everybody. And property taxes increased at the end of the day is the same as rent going up. It's the same as your living costs going up. It's just a fixed number that is always there. You can never pay it off, right? And so we've got a lot of additional costs to housing that are coming down the pipe. Some of these other cities around Portland, uh, like I live in Lake Oswego, we've got kind of double tax because we got the tri-county measure that came through. There was a Lake Oswego schools bond measure that was huge, and they sold that purely on scare tactic as well, and it got voted through. I don't care what anybody thinks. That's the truth. They tore down a school that was on the flattest piece of property in all of Lake Oswego because they said it needed to be seismically upgraded. It's a ridiculous thing. But that aside, they use those tactics, but it's becoming more and more expensive to own housing. That's really what yeah. it comes down to. And so my concern moving forward, and Steve, I'm curious what you think on this as well, but We've been in a solid market. We've been in a long run up, right? So as we hit that inflection point, we don't know where when it's going to be. We've talked about it for the last year. Did we hit it? Did we not? As we head on down the backside of this mountain into inevitably what will be a bear market at some point, did we ramp up these fixed costs too high? Is our taxation too? I mean, and then what does that mean? in terms of how long does that bear market last? What kind of corrections need to take place? So I think you, you had a quote, Sean, the overreaction or something like that was what, uh, yeah, nothing yeah. the assembly is really good at doing two things, overreacting and nothing. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel like the, if three, three, four, nine goes through it, it would be kind of a, in addition to thing and kind of an overreaction, but I don't know. What do you think, Steve, how does this all play into real estate, you know, in 2020, 2023, as we move forward down the line? Oh, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, that's a, 
um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a big part of home ownership is, is those deductions. I mean, it's a big part of, of your conversations about the benefits when you, somebody's comparing renting to owning, we've already seen, a, you know, we've already had a close scare on the federal level and seen some, you know, uh, uh, re- receding of, of the benefits. Um, fortunately, not affecting the majority of people in, in our market anyway, but there is an impact. And then you start talking about it on the state level and now you're, the conversation's right back on the docket. And, you know, and, and, and part of it too, guys, is, is on the, you know, on the federal level, okay, most people aren't going to go, hey, I'm, go- I'm moving to Canada, I'm moving to Australia, sc- you know, mo- screw this place. And they're definitely not moving to Britain given what's going on over there. <laughs> but, 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 they can do that on the state level. I have a client right now who lives in Florida. Now he had already moved, but he had three rental properties in Portland and he's done. He's and he he got caught in the in the Portland version of rent control. He kind of did, he was an example of what you talked about, Tucker. He he kind of took his eye off the ball. He had some good tenants in place, left things alone, wasn't really in communication with his property manager. And, uh, then he started paying attention and he, and all of a sudden he's realizing he can only raise his rent, you know, 9.99% per year and he's way under rent. And so he's, 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 he's making, he made the highest adjustment he could. He now is saying, get me out of here. I just want to sell 1031 exchange over to Florida where they haven't, you know, he, he, he called them a bunch of crazy liberals over here, <laughs> but, um, so that's that's a real concern. Is where does does this affect people wanting to live in our great state? And and that's bad for real estate in a whole another way, right? If if you start to see more and more of that. So, Sean, what else are you guys contending with there? What well, else is uh, let's let's take a turn a little bit and talk about some of the positive stuff uh, that we're actually advocating for. And uh, Governor Brown's actually going to be there to kick off Realtor Day um, right before we start walking into the building, which is going to be fun. And one of the bills, uh, bill packages actually that she has introduced that we're really excited about is House Bill 2055 and 2056. The 2056 is the funding side of what they're calling the Workforce Housing Accelerator. And what that does is it provides an opportunity for employers to come to the state and say, look, land use system's complex. We don't have enough workforce housing. How can we get places within our communities for the estimation of eight or 15 new families that are going to move here for those employment opportunities? I'd like to personally be able to provide an opportunity for any community uh, to do that, regardless of having to go through a complicated process. Maybe we should streamline the process before we start spending money uh, to navigate a complicated process, but I, I don't think we're going to get there because we have over 45 years of our current land use system and development and unwinding that cabal is going to be difficult and timely. But the the Workforce Housing Accelerator is a, a really good concept. James Labar in the governor's office kind of spearheaded that. It was his brainchild and it has been really, really successful. They had a million from the housing agency to uh, spearhead this in a small pilot program. So we're asking for the assembly to invest $15 million of that for the biennia moving forward. 
Uh, another bill that I'm really excited. What does about. that do, real quick, Sean? Like, what is the the logistics behind? Yeah, where does the that logistics is go? Um, the identification of uh, parcels, and those parcels could, uh, but don't have to be owned by state lands, and um, those would be developed out uh, for the missing middle housing, particularly focused on 120 percent of area median income. So right now, because of service delivery charges, the, the cost of land, especially in the Portland area, you're talking $165,000 before you even put a shovel in the dirt. Uh, so hopefully what we'll see if this bill passes is the ability to buy down some of those costs and then turn around, uh, release the grant to the property owner and then sell the property or rent the property to that demographic of that missing middle on housing. Hmm. So really what it means is a variety of different things for different different communities. Uh, James Labar is uh, uh, an exceptionally good guy. He's good at his job and he recognizes that you're not going to be able to push round holes or square pegs through round holes in every community in Oregon. So the bill's really, really flexible. So is it kind of a construction subsidy, we'll call it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's probably the best way to, to look okay. at it. I mean, I know we can't put it in a box, but I'm I'm just trying to quantify it a little bit. For a, a, a subsidy if if the ultimate usage of the house hits a certain demographic, right? Yes, yes, one hundred. Is that sell, selling to the demographic or renting or both? It would be both. It would both. be both. Yeah. Gotcha. And you said it's one hundred twenty percent of the median income. Area median income. Yeah. Which okay, like in the metro area, is that household income? Uh, yeah, it would be household income. That's that's how the. Uh, area median income is defined. so it's not um so it's not targeting lower income people it's it's nope. a little bit above okay now we're doing really good job a really good job at the state especially over the last four years in uh, identifying public resources for low-income housing opportunities i don't think there's an oregonian that doesn't look around and see that we have a homeless problem and we've made strategic investments uh including in 2018, we put $90 million into emergency housing for families. So uh, we've made some investment, but all of those have been focused at 80% area median income and below. And I think the people that are mostly served are probably in the 60, 50% uh, area median income uh, by those dollars. And then, of course, you've got the market that takes care of itself because people are well healed financially. They're able to purchase and pay for those exorbitant fees uh, to get into a house. Uh, but there's really a missing middle uh, that Oregon definitely is probably on the forefront of nationally. Uh, but every, every city uh, is dealing with the lack of housing for that missing middle. Well, hmm. you know what? After this, we could put together House Bill 2055-TTM, and I'll take $90 million and create your mental housing for you. There you go, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, 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 a lot of that has been focused on grants and buying down service delivery charges so that the developer can turn around and provide the house without those fees built into it. And when we're negotiating a piece of legislation or a policy like that, we're making sure that it hits the consumer. 90% of everything we are advocating for uh, as realtors is really driven at the consumer's benefit. It's, it's not putting mo uh, money in the pocket of realtors on transactions. 
we are advocating for a healthy housing stock. Uh, we deal, the other 10% is dealing with licensing, continuing education, and making sure that uh, realtors who shouldn't be in the business uh, coach themselves out. Uh, we want to raise the bar and make sure that the association and, and those that are uh, carry the realtor R on their lapel are doing so in a very effective, transparent, and ethical way. And yeah. by the way, when you're taking care of the 90% of the consumers, a, a beautiful byproduct is that it, is it does help the realtors. If the, if the housing market is healthy and consumers are doing well, then, then realtors will, will, be, will fall in line as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a great side benefit. For sure. And just so people, listeners can quantify, you know, when you're, when you do it, when you're creating a real estate project or development, there's essentially three types of costs, right? There's your land costs, there's your permitting costs, there's your construction costs. And so when you, create money to kind of help subsidize some of that. Number one is you could offset some of the permitting costs by getting the local government agencies to waive fees or reduce them dramatically. And number two is you redirect some money to kind of offset some of those high construction costs so that you can create an end product that is quote unquote more affordable. So that's yep. just so people understand. So. And there's a huge need for that. We've talked a yeah. lot about that over yeah. the over the years. For sure. What well, you were going to say something else, Sean. You, about, you had another uh, positive thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, individual development accounts. These have been around since the 90s. Um, these are the, the individual development account program is what we modeled a piece of 2018 legislation on, which became our first time homebuyer savings account. So you, you had mentioned me standing behind Governor Brown. Uh, that was a picture that we took with the governor when she signed our first-time homebuyer savings account, which allows any Oregonian to go into any bank, set an account up, and on a annual basis deposit up to five thousand as an individual and ten thousand jointly for the purchase of a new home over a ten-year period if they choose to stretch it out that long. Uh, I think most people will probably keep an account active for three to four years as they're saving for those, but. Uh, First-time home buyer in the bill is uh, qualified as anybody who hasn't owned a home for the last three years. So it's an it's a savings incentive, and Oregon, being an income tax state, actually being the most aggressive income tax state in the nation, you're saving around five hundred dollars as an individual when you uh, set up those accounts and start saving for your first home. No other savings account that you can find is going to give you a 9% rate of return and any interest in those accounts are not counting as income. So that piece of legislation that went into effect in January 1 of this year uh, was modeled on the individual development account uh, legislation that we're looking to uh, um, get increases in uh, state funding. So the individual development account is uh, for Oregonians of that 80% area median income. The difference really comes in, though, there's a tax credit that is sold that provides a three-to-one match uh, on funding. So an individual that's in the individual development account program, they put a dollar in, and the resources that are sold through the tax credit provide a three to one match for those. Uh, we're also looking to increase the ability within the individual development account uh, program uh, to allow individuals to save up to $6,000 a year rather than the current cap, which is $3,000 a year. 
And that's just a reflection of the housing market. Um, but very, very excited about that piece of legislation. I think it's a good opportunity for us to demonstrate that we do advocate for housing policies across the income board. And uh, uh, we've got a bill in the Senate, Senate Bill 790 and House Bill 3133. Both of them have been received really well from their committees of origin. And the key that we are are, are looking for is advocacy on Realtor Day to make sure those bills get referred to the Joint Tax Credit Committee so that they can be considered as part of the budget. So let me uh, just to, just to uh, kind of summarize real quick, the first time homebuyer account thing, which is kind of cool. I've never heard of this, but basically as an individual, you can go deposit up to 5K as a couple 10K and you basically get a guaranteed 9% return on that money. And it's also not counted as income. For, for purposes of Oregon income, yeah, yeah. not counted. So for a 5, And that 000, money, that 9% is coming from the state? That 9% is money that would have otherwise be paid as taxes to the state. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 it's a tax credit. Got it, got yeah. it. Okay, okay. So it's your own money. It's your own but, money. But you're saving it. Got it, yeah. okay. So okay. Uh, do, just making the math really simple, let's say uh, a family has a joint income of uh, $60,000. They're depositing $10,000 a year into their uh, first-time homebuyer savings accounts. When they go to calculate their taxable income, they're subtracting that $10,000 off of their total amount that they've earned, and they're only being taxed on $50,000. Comes out for a, for a family of two that's or, or three or four, uh, a joint account uh, saves you about $1,000 a year if you're making those investments. And from a certain perspective, that's your rate of return. Uh, also, any interest that accrues in those accounts doesn't count towards income. So when you ultimately take the money out and use that for a down payment, whether it's for a condo, a uh, townhome, single family detached, or uh, in some cases, even a uh, trailer, um, you're going to be that much further along in your savings. What's the best, and all, all banks across the board in, in the state of Oregon have to do this? Yeah, so they don't have to do it. It has been optional. Uh, credit unions are a little bit ahead of the game, and uh, there are a variety of credit unions that are providing first-time homebuyer savings accounts, but it is their choice. What I'll say, based on observation, is banks have been very suspicious about any policy that comes out of Salem, because usually it's in the negative for them. So they're trying to comply with regulation just like everybody else, and they're not used to very positive things that allow them to market to new consumers. Uh, but there's a couple credit unions in Portland and in Southern Oregon that are providing them currently. And I think those uh, credit unions are up on our website, if not uh, being shared by our e-news blast that we send out every two weeks. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah. So the, so the individual development accounts bills that we're advocating for this session, it would be a greater investment on public resources for those. Those allow for a three to one match. There's no match for the first time homebuyer savings account. So the IDAs, lower income Oregonians get that accelerator. Uh, and uh, we're really excited to see that bill go, go forward. There's also a little bit more flexibility 
in the individual development account programs. It can also be used for a small business microloan or uh, for uh, returning to college. So there's there's some flexibility in the individual development accounts. There is a, a home component, which is why we have a seat at the table. Um, but uh, really excited about both of those pieces of legislation. When you say three to one, you mean every dollar they put in, there's three that come out? Yeah. Okay. And just to show you guys, that was taken out in the Oregonian in 2017 when we first introduced our first-time homebuyer savings account. Uh, really, probably the highlight of my career to be able to deliver that for Oregonians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool thing. That's why I want to dive in a little deeper. I, I had not heard of it, but I'm glad we brought it up. Well, and it really just m- motivates somebody to save, um, yeah. which I, I mean, that's what I really see it doing is it gets them excited. Okay, there's a benefit to this. Uh, you know, we can do as much of t- as 10 grand a year. Let's do it. Let's make sure we don't leave any any money off the table because if I only do nine grand, I lost out on a little opportunity. So let's get that 10 grand into savings. Yeah. Which, as you said, over the course of three, four years, that's thirty, forty thousand dollars. That's a that's a nice down payment for a house. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Good good work on that. Thank what you. else should we know about Sean? Well, in two thousand seventeen, the speaker passed a bill that provides an opportunity for anybody inside the urban growth boundary, as long as they have the uh, setback and sewer capacity, to build an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, current. Prior to that, there were a variety of communities that did not allow those in residential zones. Now, every Oregonian has the ability to do those with some public health considerations that are applied at the local level. Unfortunately, that did not include rural residential. So we've got Senate Bill 88 that we're working with Senator Dembro from the Portland area to allow accessory dwelling units in rural residential Uh, Those areas definitely have space for a small 900-square-foot accessory dwelling units, mother-in-law units, whatever you call them, and uh, we're excited to be advocating for that bill. It has uh, run up against some opposition. Uh, I think generally there's a lot of people that live in those rural residential areas do live out there because they don't want density and they don't want to see neighbors as frequently as uh, somebody like myself who lives in a cul-de-sac and a cul-de-sac which has five basketball hoops uh, by the way I don't know why we need that many but uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm excited to be able to advocate for Senate Bill 88 this session as well because it it'll give parity between uh, property owners inside the urban growth boundary and uh, also in rural residential zones. You know what? One of the problems with ADUs, though, is and maybe you can craft a bill that works with some of the local municipalities. But I was, I mean, we're actually looking at it for a project that we're doing right now in Portland, and <clears throat> our permit fees on the ADU are going to be over twenty thousand dollars alone, and which is insane um, because it has to tap, uh, you know, the city services just like a house would. But there's an existing house on the lot already, so you have. I know previously there was a way to skirt that. But by not paying the upfront fee, they then retaxed your property all as new construction square yeah. footage. So people's property tax bills were going up by like 100%, 200%. And so then they couldn't sustain the ongoing obligation. We talked about property taxes earlier but of those property taxes and what that breaks down to on a monthly and annual basis. So 
ADUs are a great thing, I think, in terms of increasing density and ultimately increasing increasing rental units that are affordable rental units because generally ADUs are smaller. But man, they got to figure out how to get rid of those ridiculous permit costs attached to them because that just really puts a major roadblock in front of a lot of people that would otherwise do it. Yeah, unfortunately, cities uh, have, I mentioned it earlier, proxy regulations that basically take something that the state has focused on providing as a right and they make things cumbersome or, or so expensive that you don't actually do it. And $20,000 for an accessory dwelling unit is obscene. So um, I, I think there's room to improve, obviously. we also I'm not the only realtor government affairs director in Oregon. We have seven very, very skill, skilled uh, professionals around the state. And in the Portland area, we've got Jane Leo and... Um, uh, uh, a few other people around the state that have just been phenomenal on working this issue. Um, but cities have been slow to adopt their local codes based on that 17 legislation that allowed accessory dwelling units. The other thing that we're dealing with in regard to accessory dwelling units that we were actually able to work with the Department of uh, Revenue on without having to go to the assembly was that taxation component. So. Uh, the way Measure 5 and Measure 50, which implemented our current property tax system, rolled out was that um, if you made major renovations to your property, uh, that would trigger a recalculation of your maximum assessed value. And some cities were saying, hey, as soon as you uh, put an accessory dwelling unit, maybe we don't calculate the different value on the house, but we can now calculate an increased value for all the land on the lot because you've placed an accessory dwelling in it. And I would say that Multnomah County, which was the first to recognize this, did not um, look through the statute in rosy colored glasses as a way to increase their tax base. I think there was an actual problem that needed to be resolved within administrative rules. So we worked with the Department of Revenue to fix that. And hopefully for most cities uh, and most property owners, uh, that's not going to be an issue. Hmm. Yeah, I know ADUs were on the front page of the paper for a while there because there were a lot of people that were super surprised at their new tax bills, that's for sure. But um, it's, as you mentioned, it's just difficult, right? I mean, it's just, you know, you you, you fix one thing, (laughs) you break another, and it's just, it's kind of, uh, it's a challenge. But that's why you get up every day, and that's why they hired you, right? Yeah, that's right. So, Sean, talk to us about Realtor Day. Why should realtors care and why should they go and what do they what what's the day look like and and does it make a difference if if we go? Yeah. So um, thank you uh, for the question, uh, because I think a lot of people think, hey, we've got a lobbyist or we've got volunteer leaders that are down there at the Capitol and I'm just going to free ride on the t- coattails of, of their successes. Realtor Day is the largest advocacy day at the state legislature. Last Realtor Day, we only hold these every two years. Uh, My hair gets whiter every year as a result of age, but mostly because of the uh, pulling off the day is really controlled chaos. But 800 realtors show up, and we've already scheduled meetings with their legislators. Uh, So we take the legislation that we've either introduced we're fighting that has been introduced by somebody else, or we're trying to make better with the perspective of the realtor. In the end, I'm just the realtor's political Sherpa. I can carry you on my back into the door, but if they don't hear from real Oregonians that are representing 
other Oregonians in very complex transactions and telling the story that connects the legislation to back home, our opportunities for success are greatly diminished. And I have always been surprised when we walk out of Realtor Day, how many members of the assembly come up to me and say, hey, Sean, you know, we've been talking about this piece of legislation. You had said X, Y, or Z, but it really wasn't until Jeff, the realtor member that met with me with the three others, really sat down and talked about the impact of this and had real stories and included a story about somebody I know that I really didn't get it. Now I get it. And uh, let's, let's move forward and work together solving this problem. Uh, the day is going to start off with parking. Uh, early in the morning, we have a parking space over at the state fairgrounds, and we're going to be running commercial buses as a loop to the state capitol, so you don't have to fight all the other lobbyists for parking. And then we have a huge tent, uh, the largest tent that we can find in Oregon, that will be placed up in the Capitol Mall across from the Capitol. That will be set up with a variety of tables and chairs. Uh, and a theater-style seating uh, that will provide, uh, starting at 10 o'clock, a legislative briefing. And we'll be talking about some of the bills we mentioned today. We'll be taking questions. We'll be talking about decorum within the Capitol and uh, really best practices for engaging with our elected leaders. Then we'll have a free barbecue. Uh, the legislative briefing comes with one free credit uh, for anybody who has registered. So one free continuing education credit for our for our legislative briefing. Of course, uh, that closes down today, uh, although we do take a variety of members that do decide to show up day of. And uh, for those people, you just won't be able to get the free CE. Um, so we'll go, we'll break out. We've got lunch planned, uh, vegetarian options, uh, garden burgers, hamburgers, salad, and uh, a lot of legislators and their staff will come out to the tent and have lunch with us at that time. Then at one o'clock, our legislative meetings will start and we've been able to secure nearly every member of the assembly a meeting with their constituents who are realtors that have uh, driven over from Burns and Klamath Falls or Eugene, Pendleton area uh, for their meetings. And they really, really appreciate uh, the time that people are taking to make things happen. At four o'clock, we've got a reception that'll also be at the tent. And a lot of members will come out, members of the assembly will come out and uh, have a cocktail, uh, let their hair down a little bit, uh, probably throw jabs my way because they know me probably better than they should, um, but it's always a lot of fun, and I really appreciate the engagement. That's awesome. Sounds like a, an amazing day. And Sean, do people have to register in advance, or do, can they just show up to the fairgrounds they, where, where the buses they are? They can show up day of. And in 2017, we had 300 people show up above what we had registered for. Uh, we just made a call to one of our vendors, and they brought in about 20 extra uh, round tables, and we squeezed in underneath the tent. Luckily, it was a very, very bright and shiny, sunshiny day, um, but uh, we're going to have a variety of things in case we're rained on uh, this Realtor Day. So nobody should stay home just because of the weather. 
looking up the weather right now. <laughs> cool. Well, no, this has been a this has been a great podcast, Sean. We we truly appreciate you uh, taking the time, and obviously, this is at a this is at a um, a very busy time of year for you as and as you are gearing up for this this huge event. Um, any any final parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Um, any final admonition to join you on Tuesday? What would how would you like to to close you know, out? Tucker, Steve, I, I just want to let you guys know that it has been my pleasure to advocate on realtor and homeowners' behalfs over the last four and a half years. Uh, it's exceptionally rewarding. And I just really look forward to meeting new members of the association on Realtor Day. Uh, if you're shy, don't worry. Somebody else will be more than happy to be your mouthpiece. But an opportunity to engage in civics directly at the Oregon State Capitol is something that I think everybody should experience because you're going to walk away from that experience feeling really good about what we do as an association and the outcomes that we're able to get for Oregonians. Uh, couldn't be more happy with the programs we've developed, the transparency we have, and the, and the relationships we've been able to develop within the capital and the executive uh, branch. Yeah, very cool. Uh, just It's cool to see how it all ties together. And really, at the end of the day, Realtor Day is a great chance to come out and meet you and just talk about what's going on in the trenches and how it applies to the legislation that's getting created. And I think that's the most important thing. I always like to try to slip a few jokes into our presentation too. Uh, generally, Sean Jillians and I are known as the Sean's down at the Capitol. So you'll probably hear a lot of jokes about the Sean's. Uh, we have some pretty um, interesting dynamics within our personalities. I'm known as the nice Sean. He's known as the bad Sean. Uh, every once in a while, though, I get to play bad cop, and I always enjoy that. Really, kind of throws people for a loop, but we have a good time. The Sean's not to be confused with Bill Shonley. That's right. Yes, <laughs> there's my joke for this. <laughs> well, hey, we appreciate you coming on here, um, Steve. Thanks for uh, reaching out and getting Sean to do the show with us. It's uh, it's nice to have a, a connection with somebody down there, so we can kind of hear not only what's going on, but you know, how things actually transpired that have already gone on. I was curious about the, uh, you know, Senate Bill 608 and how that happened. And, uh, and now we got the curtain pulled back and we know how, which it, yeah. it basically got ramrodded through. <laughs> so, but uh, any, any parting words, Steve, or should we? No, put a ball on this? When, when you guys are paying your dues, this is, this is, this is a big part of what you're getting. I mean, uh, that it is so important Um to, to, to control your own universe as an industry and to try to shape the the ever-changing landscape of, of legislation that's coming out that's affecting home ownership and our clients and ultimately us. And so, Sean, on, on behalf of, of myself and, and our, our my fellow agents, thank you so much for what you, you do. And um, I encourage all to to get out there and support you on on the day that we that one day every couple of years that we can. I know a lot of um, us from Premier Property Group that are going to be there. So thank you again, yeah. and, and make we'll, sure you uh, tell everybody shoot down House Bill three three four nine. We don't yeah, need another yeah, one. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and if you guys ever want me to come on again, I'm more than happy. Uh, some people will say never give a lobbyist a microphone, and they're probably right. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
we gave you one, so we thank you for being <laughs> here, right? So we we control the mic, so we can do whatever we want. There you <laughs> go. Cool. Well, hey, awesome. we thank you for thank coming you. on. And uh, Steve, great show. Thanks for getting uh, Sean to do this. And uh, this is episode 94. We'll try and be a little more consistent, right, Steve, as we move forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Well, we'll see you all on the next one. And don't forget to go down to Real Order Day. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.